Well, good evening to each one. I greet you in the name of Jesus. I count it a privilege to be with you all this evening. We have looked forward to coming up here for quite some time. I believe it was back in, was it January or February? <laughs> when Mark contacted me about the possibility of coming tonight. And uh, I tell you what, Mark, he's on the ball. He, he plans out ahead. That, that's good. We need people like that in our churches. Some of us like to kind of put things off. So, But yeah, I'm glad to be here tonight. And as you know, the title I have been given for tonight is, Who is Your Bridegroom? Who is your bridegroom? And so I wonder what comes to your mind with a sermon entitled, Who is Your Bridegroom? What are you expecting to hear tonight? And I'll have to say this title maybe stretched me just a bit trying to come up with a sermon that just fit this title perfectly. <laughs> and I'm not sure if I quite got that done, but I'm going to share with you what I came up with. And uh, we'll go from there. But first of all, just for a refresher, let's think for a bit about what the Bible says about the bridegroom and the bride. In the Bible, the word bridegroom is often used as a metaphor for God, particularly Jesus Christ. In Mark 2, 18 and 19, Jesus referred to himself as the bridegroom when he talked about why his disciples did not fast. Likewise, in John 3, 29, John the Baptist presented himself as the bridegroom's friend and declared that the bride belongs to the bridegroom. And then the Church of Christ is likened to a bride with Christ as her bridegroom. And the bride of Christ, we believe, consists of the entire body of believers throughout the ages. It is all who, it is all who have received salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That would be the bride of Christ. Many years before Jesus came to earth, the bride of Christ revelation began to unfold. Uh, the prophet Hosea was one who prophesied in Hosea 2, 19 and 20. He said these words, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And then at the end of the Bible, John the Revelator in Revelation 21 verse 2 saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so that is just a brief introduction to Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. Now, we could take that and talk about that for quite some time, but that's just an introduction, just a refresher. Okay, you may be familiar with the hymn, Jesus is Standing in Pilate's Hall. And as I studied for this message, several lines from this hymn has been ringing in my head. 
And the first verse of that hymn goes like this. Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken what meaned, what meaneth the sudden call. What will you do with Jesus? And the chorus goes, what will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? And those first two lines of the chorus is basically tonight's sermon in a nutshell. And that is, what will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. We understand neutral, don't we? You understand neutral? You know, you're in your car, you think you have it in reverse, or maybe in drive, and you step on the gas, <laughs> nothing happens. Oh, you know, it goes. And you come to that realization, oh, I'm in neutral. And that's always funnier when it's someone else, as you know. But the song says, and it's our sermon in a nutshell tonight, neutral you cannot be. Neutral you cannot be. And so the question, who is your bridegroom? Who is your bridegroom? Now, I haven't found this question in the Bible, but I have found very similar questions, and I want to take you to several passages tonight where ordinary people like you and I are faced with a life situation that calls for a choice. A choice to stand for God in truth or to do otherwise. And so we'll begin in Exodus 32, and I welcome you to turn there. Exodus 32. In this passage, we have the question, who is on the Lord's side? And the verse I want to eventually show you is verse 26. But first, let's look at what is happening in this account. And so the setting is Moses has been gone from camp for 40 days. He's spending time with God. And let's look, read verse 1 through 4. It tells us what is happening in his absence. Exodus 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed, Coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that should go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so that's the setting. Well, in verse 7 and 8, God tells Moses, He said, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Verse 9 and 10, God is angry. He said, I'm angry with these people and I'm going to consume them all. Verse 11 through 13, Moses pleaded with the Lord to not destroy the people. 
verse 14, the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. In verse 19, Moses arrives at camp. He sees the people dancing and worshiping the calf. First, God is angry with the people. And now Moses' anger burns hot. In his anger, he cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Verse 20, he took the calf which they had made, burned it with fire and ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Verse 21 through 25, Moses confronts Aaron, and Aaron makes excuses for his actions. I mean, what was I to do, Moses? You weren't coming back, and you know how these people are set on doing evil. And now we come to verse 6, or verse 26, and this is the verse I want to show you here tonight. Then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Can you picture Moses here in this setting shouting out these words? Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. You see, in coming to Moses, the people would be making a choice to be on the Lord's side. We see the sons of Levi. They came and stood by Moses. Did other folks get up and follow their example and said, we too are on the Lord's side? You know, count us in? It doesn't really say. But think about what was happening here. The camp is on an emotional high. A new golden calf a new golden calf idol, and then this altar is set before it. A new, exciting way to worship. In fact, they were so excited, they were so into it, that they couldn't even sleep. In verse 6, they rose early in the morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, but then it falls apart. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and the word drink has the thought of drunkenness and rose up to play, which is a tasteful way to speak of gross sexual immorality. And now picture Moses standing there, all this corruption, all this evil, stepping up and saying, who is on the Lord's side? And so we wonder, with these words, did a hush fall out over the people, out over the crowd? Or were the people so intoxicated with strong drink and lust that his, word made, his words made no sense? Well, with what happens here in the following verses, it would seem like the people could not think through the seriousness of their sin. That is verse 27 and 28. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. And I don't 
understand this killing process, but in this case, siding with the Lord meant siding against some of the people. Why only 3,000 killed? Surely there was more who had sinned? Maybe these were the group instigators? We really don't know. But however it was, I see two very important truths in this story for us tonight. And those truths are simply, there must be a separation between those who are on the Lord's side and those who worship their own God and their own ideas and their own thoughts. There must be a separation. You know, Moses wanted more from the people than just a verbal response. He wanted more from them than just a raise of hands. What he needed was folks to stand up and separate themselves from the evil around them. And so that is the first lesson I see. And the second lesson I see in this account, there is safety on the Lord's side. There is safety on the Lord's side. Those who chose to stand along Moses were safe. They were saved spiritually, and they were saved from spiritual harm, physical harm. And so tonight, the lesson I see here is there is safety on the Lord's side. And what a blessing that is. You know, we've, we've been studying the book of Hebrews just like you folks are doing. And a couple Sundays ago, someone brought out in our class that when the Hebrew people were on the Lord's side, they were safe. Their enemies feared them. They were blessed with physical blessing. But when that changed, they were very vulnerable. Folks, there is safety on the Lord's side. Well, I believe Moses' question has stood the test of time. And I believe it's a question that we should consider as we think about who is your bridegroom? Who is on the Lord's side? Is that you? Is that I? Is that me? Is that us here tonight? Well, let's go to another account. Let's go to Joshua 24. Our lessons tonight come from the Hebrew people. You can turn to Joshua 24. <clears throat> Again, I will read a few verses in the chapter and tell you a bit about the rest. <clears throat> but the people in Joshua 24 were dealing with change. They were dealing with change. Joshua, the faithful leader, was getting up in age, and because of his age, someone else would eventually need to take his place. And so we find Joshua here in the beginning of the chapter sharing some last words of encouragement to the people. The first 13 verses, Joshua recites past history, history of God's faithfulness to the people or to his people. Verse 14 and 15, he challenges the people to choose whom you will serve. Let's read those verses. Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Now therefore, fear the Lord, Serve him in sincerity and in truth, 
and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua says, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. And like I said, change was coming to the people of Israel. And as much as we shy away from change, it is a part of life. It's been said that nothing endures in this world but change and how true that is. How do we deal with the changing scenes of life? How do we stay focused and committed to the Lord in the changing scenes of life? The lesson I see in this passage for us tonight is the value of choosing this day whom we will serve. And I'm thinking tonight of a daily choosing this day whom I will serve. In the morning, I awake and choose this day to serve the Lord. It's my daily focus. It's my everyday morning ritual, choosing this day whom I will serve. And I believe this is powerful because when the fear of change grips our minds and begins to cripple us and get us down, we can say to that fear, no, I have chose this day to serve the Lord. You say to that fear, the God I serve is on the throne. He controls the universe. He's my provider. He's my healer. He's my avenger. He's my way maker. Psalm 18 verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength and whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. This is the God I have chose this day to serve. Yes, the change you are dealing with will still be there. The change will still be real. But I believe when you have chose this day to serve the Lord, you will be empowered to face that change. I love the response of the people in verse 16 through 18. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. What 
a beautiful response to the words of Joshua. And I believe Joshua's words too have stood the test of time. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. What a powerful weapon to face the ever-changing scenes of life. Let's go now to 1 Kings 18. Again, I welcome you to turn there. I will be reading a few verses and telling you about some of the story. Unfortunately, we can't go into every detail tonight, but we can work on the main points. But the question we have to consider here is found in verse 21 of 1 Kings 18. That is where we're eventually going to get to. And the question is, how long will you falter, or your King James may say halt, between two opinions? That is the verse we will eventually get to. But in this passage, we find the story of Elijah's victory on Mount Carmel. The land is in this remarkable three-and-a-half-year drought due to the fervent prayer of Elijah. And earlier, God told Elijah to hide himself. Now God said here in this passage, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. And so that begins to happen down in verse 17. Um, let's read 17 through 21 to get a bit of a picture here of what's happening. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, a troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandment of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, Send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal... But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. And so at this time in Israel's history, idol worship has gained popularity in the land. And Jezebel's ultimate goal was to dethrone the God of Israel and make the God of Baal her God, the God who is to be worshipped. And currently, eating at her table is 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Now, these false prophets and what happened to them is not my focus tonight. <laughs> uh, you know, you're welcome to think about that, but that's not really what I want to focus on. What I want us to think about is the children of Israel who witnessed this great victory. Ahab sent for all the children of Israel. Now, I, I did a bit of research trying to figure out how many that may have been. Uh, no one really seemed to know. 
in my short research. But folks, that had to be a huge, huge crowd of people. And it's hard to know why Ahab did this. I don't quite understand. I mean, he actually carried out the instructions of Elijah, which seems a bit strange. And perhaps he hoped that the people would be so angry with Elijah for the three years of drought, three and a half years of drought, that they would just, here would be their opportunity to just rebel against him. You know, maybe destroy him. I don't know what Ahab was thinking. But it may have been he was seeing that the people were slowly turning from worshiping the God of Israel to worshiping Baal. Maybe he thought the ratio was, was about right. We'll get them here and we'll get the rest convinced. However it was, I believe Ahab believed it would be to Baal's advantage for all the children of Israel together at Mount Carmel. And as the story unfolds, it soon becomes obvious that some had turned to worshiping Baal. In fact, they made a real fool of themselves as the story unfolds. And so in verse 21, I read it before, but I'll read it again. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. And I find the ancient Hebrew word translated falter, that's a very interesting word. I believe in the, the King James, it's uh, halt. In the New King James, it's falter. But the word means, the word that is translated from means to limp, halt, hop, dance, or leap. And from my study, I found that the word is actually a metaphor taken from the birds, hopping about from branch to branch, not knowing on which to settle. Okay, so you get the picture. You've seen birds do that. And so let's think about it like that. Elijah is saying, how long will you hop or dance between two opinions? That's basically what he was asking. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And it's interesting to me that the people answered him not a word. There was no objection and there was no repentance. It seems as though they lacked the courage to either defend their position or to change it. They seemed somewhat helpless. And Elijah could so accurately see their hearts because he could see their actions. And so I see two lessons here for us tonight. And first, the first lesson I see, Elijah made it clear to this mountain crowd that there is a huge difference between serving Baal and serving the Lord, Jehovah God. You know, to some, perhaps in the minds of many of the people, there was not 
that great of difference. To some, maybe the only important thing was to have some kind of religion and to be sincere about that. You know, the mentality that all roads will eventually lead to God. Elijah knew that it could not be both ways. You either serve Baal or you serve the Lord God of Israel. You see, neutral you cannot be. <laughs> That's the first lesson I see here. And the second lesson, Elijah calls his hearers to account for the period of time in which they had not made a decision between the Lord God and Baal. How long? How long? He asked them. Let me share with you the words of Charles Spurgeon. And this was written in the 1800s. And I'll read it to you in that English language of that time. How many more sermons do you want? How many more Sundays must roll away wasted? How many warnings? How many sicknesses? How many tollings of the bell to warn you that you must die? How many graves must be dug for your family before you will be impressed? How many plagues and pestilence must ravage this city before you will turn to God in truth? How long halt ye between two opinions? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, that no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus is saying, we follow what has captivated our hearts. What has captivated our hearts, we will naturally love. Opposing masters will demand different things and lead down different paths. And so a choice must be made. Who will be your bridegroom? How long will you falter between God's way and the way which seems right to man? Will it take fire from heaven to convince you who will be your bridegroom? I'd like to think back to the concept that we talked about earlier of Christ the bridegroom and we the bride. Let's think about that a bit again, but think with me. Jesus left his father's home in heaven and traveled to the home of his prospective bride to purchase her for a price, and that price was his own blood. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The bridegroom loved his bride and gave himself for her, not with gifts overlaid with gold and silver like a typical bridegroom would give, but with his precious blood. 
We like gifts. Gifts are nice. We enjoy giving gifts. We enjoy receiving gifts. But the gift of giving oneself to another is the best gift that ever can be given. That's what Jesus gave. Jesus gave all of himself, even his own blood. This, my friends, is a divine love story between God the Father, his son Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. And so, if you are not part of this divine love story, you may wonder, how do I become part of the bride of Christ? How does that happen? John 3, 16 tells us how it happens. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When we by faith believe and receive the bridegroom as my Savior and have consented to the match, you see, consented to the match, we become part of this beautiful relationship of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and we who believe in him, the bride. And if that isn't enough, we are then given one more gift, and that is the priceless token of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. In this relationship, dear people, all the cards are on the table. There is no dark corners. There is no locked drawers or big secrets. God knows everything. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. Jesus is my bridegroom, and I am his bride. I love the word picture of the hymn, I Come to the Garden Alone. I come to the garden alone, while the dew is still in the roses, and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Folks, there is nothing in the world more beautiful than the close relationship between Jesus the bridegroom and we his bride. And if you're not in this relationship of blessing and love tonight, you are missing out. You see, on the Lord's side, there is safety, physical and spiritual protection. Choosing this day to serve the Lord will empower you to face the ever-changing scenes of life. And tonight, there is no need to falter between the true God and the God of this world. The true God has been made known to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. And so in closing, 
I'd like to take you back there to Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal, the thousands and thousands of people surrounding that mountaintop. And after the altar was soaked with water and the trench was filled, Elijah, he's standing there surrounded by thousands of people and he prays this simple prayer. And it is my prayer for you tonight. And he says these words, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And my, did God answer that prayer in a mighty way. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, when all the people, remember this crowd, all, listen, now when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Tonight, who is your bridegroom?